0: Welcome back to Mafia, and in this Audioboom original podcast series, we explore America's criminal underworld to reveal the lives and careers of its greatest gangsters. This series has been extensively researched and produced in consultation with experts, authors, and those who are actually there. Our sponsors are Blue Apron and
1: Casper. In the 1980s, one man became the face of the Mafia, the most famous gangster since Al Capone. John
2: Gotti. His picture's on page one of newspapers. His name is all over TV. He's a a headline figure.
3: He was Moby Dick in the organized crime world. Everybody wanted to prosecute John Gotti.
2: Here was this guy. He had this come and get me attitude to law enforcement. He made fun of them.
1: In the previous episode, we saw how Lucky Luciano hid his brutality and violence behind sharp suits and an air of sophistication. Two decades after Luciano's death, a new boss would take that tactic to a whole new level. But before John Gotti became the Teflon Don, he was a relatively minor player in the mob.
4: You know, John Gotti came from a very poor family. He was, early on, just a street thug, hijacker, petty crimes. I mean, his initial forte in organized crime was hijacking trucks and beating people up and killing people. He was a thug, in my view. This is
1: Mafia. John Gotti began his mob career in the late 1950s. Always ambitious, he was determined to join the most powerful of New York's five organized crime groups. Selwyn Rabb is the author of the book Five Families.
2: Uh, One of the two most powerful families in New York and in the country was a family known as the Gambino family, Uh, It was named after Carlo Gambino, who took over control of the family in the 1950s. The Gambino family had really expanded the Mafia's influence and power, had gone beyond the old-fashioned thuggery, hijackings, uh, extortion, gambling, and loan sharking, which were bringing in millions. But he went into uh, white-collar crime, and he especially used the unions as a weapon to gain control or influence or loot from such industries as the uh, construction industry, the garment Center industry, uh, almost everything you could touch in New York, the Gambino family was in the periphery, if not directly in control of it. Conservative estimates indicate that the Gambino family was making an illegal profits in 1976, when Carlo died, easily four to $500 million a year. Now, that would, at that time, a million was a million and it really counted, so it was, they were probably bigger than General Motors or any of the major industries in America. In
1: 1973, Don Carlo Gambino's nephew was kidnapped and murdered by members of the Irish mob. Gotti was recruited to be part of a hit squad in the revenge killing of Irish gangster James McBratney.
2: He had grown up being known as a tough guy, a muscle man. Uh, He had made his bones actually by uh, pulling a murder for Carlo Gambino. And uh, making your bones means that you proved your your tutorship and that you are now ready for full-fledged membership as a maid or soldier in the family.
1: Gotti was caught by the cops and sentenced to seven years. But he was
4: out in less than two. On his release, he was richly rewarded. He became a member of the Gambino family in the late 1970s.
1: FBI agent Bruce Moe was the man tasked with investigating the Gambino family.
4: In 78, he became a captain, and he supervised the Bergenhut and Fish crew, which is one of the toughest crews here in New York, including his brother Gene, John Coniglia, Tony Rampino. And it's one of the most violent and ruthless crews in the Gambino family. And they're engaged in everything from truck hijackings to murders and loan sharking.
1: James Callstrom, former FBI
4: special ops agent. These guys were really gunslingers. I mean, they—they they had shotguns, and they were thugs. They were hoods. These people were really uh, dangerous people. That whole crew that Gotti had under him—I um, didn't know the detail of every individual member. Because remember, now, you know, at that time, in the Gotti case, I was pretty high up in the in the office, so I wasn't down there in the in the weeds of individuals. Um, but just from my knowledge of them. You know, half a decade earlier, they were really crazy people. And Hijack is really a very violent, violent people. And that's
1: kind of what Gotti was. By 1976, Gotti was a rising star in New York's most powerful crime family and a protege of Gambino underboss, Aniello della Croce.
2: Now, della Croce uh, never made any pretense about being on the sophisticated end of organized crime. He was a street smart guy, he grew up through loan shocking, gambling, extortion, hijacking. That was his element. And he had been the street boss under Carlo.
1: As former New York State prosecutor John Gleason explains, Gotti
3: impressed the Gambino underboss. He was just a thug, you know, you can get pretty far in life if you're willing to shoot somebody who doesn't give you your way, right? That's a pretty significant advantage. That was the only advantage he had. He didn't have any advantage in smarts or business acumen. He was willing to shoot somebody in the back of the head if he didn't get his way. And that's all he had going for him. But everything changed on October 15, 1976,
1: when, after 20 years as the head of the family, Carlo Gambino died of natural causes. Many assumed he would appoint Della Croce, his underboss, as his successor. But instead, his brother-in-law, Paul Castellano, was given control of the family, Selwyn Rabb.
2: So when Gambino died, uh, he sort of left his will that he wanted uh, Paul Castellano to inherit the boss ship, that he would be the Super Don. Uh, Now, that caused a lot of resentment in the Gambino family because roughly 20 crews or units that were in the family, about half of them were really being led by Neil de Croce. And they thought that Neil deserved to become the godfather, not Paul, who really had never dirtied his fingers and was remote and sort of removed from the street people. Now, Castellano had never been on the rough edge of the mob or the Gambino family, thanks to nepotism and, and his relationship with his brother-in-law, Carlo. He was more on the, he was always on the upper end uh, he wasn't involved in uh, violent crimes. Uh, he considered himself sort of a statesman, a diplomat. Among other things, he uh, had a reputation that he was more intellectual than most of the D's and D's guys. He read the Wall Street Journal. He, had, he dressed well. Uh, he spoke sort of, uh, he didn't speak in, uh, in this kind of street talk. He considered himself superior and not any part of this kind of violent, thuggish element in ma- the mafia. And he also, uh, try to deal with respectable uh, businessmen. And that was the pose that he took, uh, that he was not really a mafia leader, he was just another businessman.
1: Castellano took a dim view of street crews like Gotti's.
2: It was the kind of crew that Paul Castellano didn't really favor because they were, uh, they were looked upon as uh, hard muscle guys, jaw breakers, knee breakers, but pea brained. Uh, Paul then decided to compromise and show his diplomacy. So what he did, he kept Neil Della Croce as his underboss. But in effect, he turned over half of the Gambino family, more or less, to Neil's direction. So you had this major split that wasn't you know, maybe apparent, but there it was, Neil was running half the family, and uh, at the same time, uh, Paul Castellano was the uh, presumed head. Uh, but it, it, it led to a lot of uh, dismay Uh, because the crews that were under uh, Neil de la thought they weren't getting a fair share of the loot, Uh, that what Paul was doing was he was doling out more to people who were loyal to him, obviously.
1: As Bruce Moe explains, Castellano gradually began cutting crews like Gotti's out of the most profitable
4: rackets. In 85, the Gambina family was uh, Somewhat There were those who were associated with Neil Delacroach and there were those that were closer to Paul Castellano. Castellano and all his side made all the money. The Gotti's crews were all struggling, just trying to earn enough money to, to get by.
1: Gotti's resentment of Paul Castellano soon bloomed into hatred. But as long as his mentor, Delacroche, remained his senior, he wouldn't
4: turn to violence. Neil Delacroche, uh, for many years was the loyal underboss and he's always loyal to the boss. He knew in 1985 that there was a lot of dissension in the family between the Gotti side, it's more of the street guys opposed to past Castellano and all the white collar guys. But he was a loyal boss and the boss came first, everybody else came second or third and he always kept everything together. He knew that Gotti probably wanted to take out Castellano but Neil was a stabilizing force to look guys don't do anything stupid He's the boss. You don't kill bosses in La Casa Nostra.
1: The growing fractures within the family weren't the only problem the Gambinos were facing. The government was preparing to wage war on the mob dons. After the break, Ronald Goldstock is a former head of the New York State Task Force Against Organized Crime. Very often, in a Darwinian sense, you took out the lame and the weak and you allowed the strong to survive.
2: And the mob in the Big Apple presented the greatest challenge of all. The bosses, the underbosses, the Consiglieri, even the capos, the captains, who ran the street units, they never pulled the trigger. They never really extorted directly money from anyone. They were on the receiving end, but they weren't on the working end. For the most part, the biggest nut for the FBI to crack was New York. New York was the epicenter, the capital of the Mafia in America. It really was the uh, uh, the uh, crown jewel, more money, uh, more people. And they had five families. Most cities had one family. So if you could dismantle one family, you could be very effective. Problem in New York is if you took, on, you took one family out, there were still four others that could move in. And uh, in a sense, just take over for what uh, one family had lost. So it was very difficult in New York. The supervisors in New York came up with a great idea. They would have a specific squad for each of the five families in New York, the five largest and most powerful families in the country. So they had a Gambino squad, a Colombo squad, a Lucchese squad, a Genovese squad, a Banano squad. And in this way, each family was now in the spotlight and under a microscope.
1: Head of the Gambino squad was FBI agent Bruce Moe.
4: We started out in 1980 there's very little intelligence in the Gambino family. So basically, we started from scratch. And so the first couple of years, we just spent uh, conducting intelligence, developing informants, doing a lot of surveillances, just trying to develop cases against the hierarchy of the family and also influential captains. And uh, one of the first cases we opened was targeting us John Gotti.
2: Two of the most amazing protagonists in one of the major crime stories in New York's history uh, was the head of the uh, organized FBI Gambino squad, one Bruce Mao, whose uh, main job was to get John Gotti. What a contrast between two figures. Here's John Gotti, uh, thuggish, womanizing, hard-drinking, profligate gambler, the consummate uh, gangster image. And here's Bruce Mao, almost the uh, picture postcard for the FBI. Gotti is this urban uh, thug. Bruce Mao is from a small town in Iowa, grows up in a farm environment. Gotti is a draft dodger. Bruce Mao goes to the Naval Academy, and becomes a hero sub- submarine officer. He's a combination of Clint Eastwood and Gary Cooper, the all-American kid. And his main job is to get this all-American gangster, even though he didn't un- he didn't grow up in the culture of New York. Or, or organized crime, he seemed to understand it. He had a sixth sense of figuring it out. And he had one quality, that he realized patience was the most important thing. And he comes in to take over a squad, which he finds the intelligence bin is vacant. They have nothing, almost no idea of who they're dealing with.
1: Getting anything on John
4: Gotti wouldn't be easy. When we started out in 1980, um, organized crime cases are probably the most difficult to investigate in the FBI, because you're dealing with career criminals. These guys are surveillance conscious, they're always looking over their shoulder. Uh, they don't talk on the telephone. If they do, it's very cryptic conversation, so wiretaps and telephones are very difficult to be productive. Um, they're reluctant to sign anything in writing, so they don't leave paper trails for white collar cases. And they're career criminals, so they're experienced and they're hard to investigate. Also, they do get in trouble. They have the resources to hire the best criminal defense attorneys in America. And so they can vigorously oppose any case we bring. So these are hard cases to uh, work. And probably the most important thing is it's so difficult to find witnesses. There could be a homicide. There could be a murder and you do a crime scene. You you talk to people and nobody saw nothing because they all know it was a mob hit, a mob uh, homicide. They know what happens if they cooperate and testify, they'll get killed. So any witnesses that try to cooperate, like civilian witnesses, they know the ramifications, they'll get murdered if they cooperate with the FBI or the police. So these are tough cases to work. And the most important thing is to have patience, a lot of perseverance, and realize you're not gonna make a case in 90 days or 180 days. These are like two or three year investigations before they culminate in indictments. Fortunately, the bosses understand that and they normally give you a lot of leeway as far as uh, working these cases.
1: MOE HAD TO FIND A WAY TO BREAK INTO AN ORGANIZATION THAT PRACTICED THE SICILIAN TRADITION OF OMERTA, THE STRICT MAFIA CODE OF SILENCE.
2: HE TAKES A SMALL CREW OF MAYBE EIGHT OR NINE AGENTS AND HE TURNS THEM INTO THIS INCREDIBLY VIGILANT, uh, UNEARTHING EVIDENCE. AND HE TELLS THEM, YOU CAN'T SIT ON YOUR RUMP. HE USED MORE BLUNT LANGUAGE. You've got to go out there and do street work. You've got to meet these people. You've got to find out who they are, who meets with them, take license plate numbers. You've got to do all this dirty legwork to try to get clues so we can get probable cause that maybe we could actually eavesdrop electronically on them or find informers. And he gets these people, and he gets them to work almost as hard as he does. He was putting in 15 or 16 hour days. In fact, there was sort of a um, good natured joke about him uh, they called him Chairman Mao. But it got results. And this, and this incredible patience uh, finally paid off. It took years.
4: When you investigate a crime family, you always look for a weak link and try to find some place where they're vulnerable or where somebody's talking. We like to find a gossip. And Gotti had a number one man by the name of Andrew Rogerio, who kind of ran the crew for John because John was too busy gambling and partying to do all the day-to-day stuff. So Angelo was his number one guy. Angelo was a talker, a gossip, and very active. And we realized that he would be the key to
2: getting Gotti and his crew. Uh, John Gotti had a sidekick, a friend who went back to his teenage days, name was Fat Angie, Angelo Ruggiero. Angie Ruggiero was uh, intimately known as Quack Quack. He gossiped a lot. He liked to talk, he liked to blab. And we learned that uh,
4: Ruggiero moved to a house in Cedar Bush, Long Island, and he was meeting other members of Gambino family in his kitchen. And so we had several informants who would talk about this, and they told us where he's meeting. There were criminal conversations. Uh, we first conduct surveillances to prove they were members of Gambino family meeting with Angelo at his residence and then we corroborated that with the informants. And then once we have that information, we put it together in an affidavit to apply for Title III electronic surveillance, where the uh, affidavit would result in a court order would allow us to go into his house, put a bug in there, and then subsequently monitor the conversations for 30-day periods. Every 30 days, you have to get a renewal application to continue the court order if the previous 30 days have been productive. And so that's how we basically do our electronic surveillance. In
1: 1981, Mo's team were granted court permission to bug Angelo Ruggiero's phone and home.
4: He was meeting like in a, a little dining area right outside his kitchen. And so our technical people put a bug in there to capture those conversations. They had a court order to break into his house and also to monitor these conversations.
1: And it wasn't long before they started getting results.
4: During the Ruggiero wire, we realized that these guys were involved in major heroin activity. And they were pushing uh, approximately 50 kilos of heroin in a six-month period here in New York. And the three main distributors were Andrew Ruggiero, who was Gotti's number one guy, Gene Gotti, his brother, and John Caniglia. And so based on the Ruggiero wire, we were able to indict Ruggiero, Gene Gotti, and about 12 others in 1983 for heroin trafficking.
1: But they had nothing to link John Gotti directly to
4: the crime. We know John Gotti knew about it. He know we got a piece of it, but he wasn't actually involved in the physical trafficking of the product itself.
1: Despite avoiding arrest, Gotti had cause for alarm. The tapes from Ruggiero's wiretaps would be dangerous in the wrong
2: hands. Angie Ruggiero, he'd get on the phone or talk to people and start talking about Paul and other people, giving away very valuable evidence and leads that led to also probable cause to bug other, uh, to bug big shots in the uh, mafia families in New York. When the case uh, came close to trial, the uh, transcripts of these bug conversations were given to Ruggiero and his lawyer. And Castellano got word of it, that there was mentions of him in these bugs, in these transcripts. He wanted those transcripts because he knew it was potentially a weapon he could use, not just against Angelo Ruggiero, but he could use it against John Gotti. Gotti knew what would happen if Paul Castellano ever read those transcripts because he badmouthed Paul, he made fun of him, he ridiculed him, he called him all sorts of uncomplimentary names, and he was mentioning a lot of things he shouldn't be mentioning. So that was really a death warrant if Paul Castellano got a hold of those transcripts.
1: Although the mafia profited from narcotics, many bosses, including Paul Castellano, had a rule banning their
2: crews from dealing drugs. Actually, he passed an edict, and the edict was a rule that nobody in the family could engage in narcotics, and the penalty for being caught was a hit. You'd be rubbed out, you'd be killed, you'd be whacked. The reason was, and he gave lip service to it, the reason was that they feared that people who uh, engaged in narcotics might face long sentences if uh, convicted, might start ratting, start squealing. At the same time, they also might get involved themselves in using narcotics. So while Paul didn't mind profiting, and he knew certain elements in his family, you know, were big narcotics dealers and kicking up money right to him.
4: Bruce Moe. All the families in New York were had different theories on drug trafficking. Uh, technically, according to the commission, you were not supposed to engage in any types of narcotics trafficking. But of course, uh, there's a lot of money to be made in heroin trafficking, marijuana, cocaine. So some of the families abided by it. Some of the families ignored it. Some of the families just looked the other way. Castellano was two-faced about narcotics dealing. Many of his captains, including John Gambino, Patsy Conti, were major international heroin dealers. Paul knew this, he looked the other way, as long as he got a new Mercedes every year, or a new car, a lot of money from this. As long as nobody got caught, he would look the other way. But if somebody did get arrested for, uh, say, trafficking in marijuana or coke or heroin, then he'd have to take action and kill them according to official commission rules. So Paul was very two-faced about it.
2: He had this edict and it was very effective. He could use it whenever he wanted to get rid of somebody he didn't like if they got mixed up in narcotics.
4: And of course, um, Castellano found out about this, it was in the papers and he was pressing John Gotti on what's the story of this heroin trafficking and Gotti was trying to put him off saying, look, it's a government conspiracy, it's a frame up. These guys really weren't involved in it, but Castellano knew differently. And it got to a point in 85 where Castellano wanted to actually listen to the tapes or the recordings uh, Ruggiero and Gotti had them because they were turned over in discovery. Paul said, I want to listen to these tapes. And Gotti knew if they turned over these tapes to Castellano, you know, the conversation is very explicit that uh, they'd all be killed as a result.
1: Other New York bosses, including Vincent the Chin Giganti of the Genovese family, agreed Gotti was trouble and he should be taken out.
4: Castellano wasn't a big fan of John Gotti, Ruggiero, and uh, they weren't like his fair haired boys. So he definitely would have had them killed. And he had the manpower and the horsepower and the firepower to do it.
1: Gotti was in a corner.
4: It
3: was a kill or be killed situation.
1: If he was to kill Castellano without permission from New York's other mafia dons, he would need allies. There's more to the story after the break. Then in 1984, Paul Castellano was indicted on charges of conspiracy and murder in the commission case.
4: A lot of people started talking funny about Paul Castellano in 85. He was arrested. Also, the time, uh, he had a mistress, his living maid uh, who was from Colombia, and he threw his wife out and he was living with her. Uh, they thought he might become a rat, he might cooperate with the government. And so in 85, there was a small faction in the Gambina family started meeting about plotting to overthrow and kill Paul Castellano and take over the family.
1: This was Gotti's chance.
2: Gotti knew he needed a preemptive strike and he knew it wouldn't be easy. Castellano was the uh, uh, godfather of a major family, his own family, and uh, what he did was, uh, to try to try to smooth out what would happen in the aftermath, he sent out the uh, Ruggiero and other emissaries to see there were other possible defectors in the Gambino family, and he found some, especially one by the name of Frank De Chico, who was a captain, capo of an important crew.
1: And he wasn't the only one willing to work with Gotti. He also recruited another of his major rivals in the Gambino family, a wealthy Castellano loyalist, Sammy the Bull
2: Gravano. So Gotti won, got four or five defectors together, and they called themselves the Fist. And here was for the first time, Gotti seemed to be uh, a smart, not just a brutal, uh, brutal, hard-nosed criminal.
1: Then, in December 1985, things escalated.
4: Unfortunately, uh, Delacroix developed cancer. He died in December of 1985, and uh, Castellano didn't go to his wake. And then after that, he. We organized the family, promoted Tommy Bellotti to position underboss of the family. Gotti thought he should have been the new underboss. Uh, they also transferred a major earner from Gotti's crew by the name of Joe LaFort to the crew of Tommy Bellotti. Also, Castellano was again pressuring John for those tapes of
2: Angelo, and they realized they'd have to do something or they'd be killed. Now, once Della Croce was gone, uh, the protection for Gotti was removed. Gotti was now on his own. And Gotti knew uh, that either he was gonna be demoted or more likely he was gonna be assassinated, whacked. And he decided that he had to move first. Now, until this time, Gotti's reputation was hard-nosed, street kind of criminal. He wasn't known for being an intellectual or someone a strategist who could get involved in sophisticated, uh, Complex crimes. Now, for the first time, once Della Croce was gone, Gotti, and this was unforeseen, showed strategic sense and unforeseen acumen. He devised a way of killing Castellano. And it really was a brilliant coup that he engineered.
4: And in December of 1985, they decided to go ahead with their plan. They learned from Frank DiCicco that Castellano was supposed to have dinner at a restaurant called Sparks Steakhouse on the night of December 16, 1985. They knew about this like a day ahead of time and so they assembled their crew, their hit teams.
2: Now Castellano had become so overconfident. He'd been the boss for 10 years. There'd been no attempts against him. He felt immune. And he rode around only with one lieutenant, a guy by the name of Bellotti, and he was unarmed. No bodyguards. They knew the hour, they knew how he was gonna arrive there. They first rendezvous in the park, uh, not far from the
4: location, and then they s- started their plan around four o'clock. They put their hit teams on the streets, they had on Russian hats, long overcoats.
2: They had everybody dress in white trench coats and also wear Russian fur hats. And the idea was that everybody would look the same, so any, any passers-by on the street could not really make a solid identification.
1: Gotti himself was only feet away in a parked car. His new right-hand man, Sammy Gravano, sat beside him. Gotti wanted to see the killing of Castellano for himself, a hit that would change the mob forever.
4: Gotti and Gravano were in a vehicle at at the intersection overlooking Sparks Restaurant. Around 515, they saw Castellano drive by with Bilotti in a big Lincoln Town car heading for Sparks Restaurant. They had a walkie-talkie, the radio. the hit team. He's arriving. Uh, Castellano's car pulls in front. Four shooters surround the vehicle and they start firing. They kill Tommy Pilotti, the underboss, and Paul Castellano, the boss. And then they slowly walk down the street and got into getaway cars and went back to where they came from. It was a very audacious hit because they did it in during rush hour, during the Christmas shopping season right outside a busy steakhouse, and they didn't miss. Later, the Gambino family called that the night of the Holocaust. You talk about shock and awe, like in the past Iraqi Wars, this was shock and awe for the Gambino family. Within a few days, the whole Gambino family knew that John Gotti did this.
1: A month after the hit, Gotti called a meeting of the Gambino captains and filled it with his own supporters.
4: A few weeks later, they again assembled all the captains of course, Gotti's sitting there as one of the captains. And uh, Gallo says, look, we complete our investigation. We have no idea what happened to Paul or Tommy. Let's have an election for the new boss. Frank DiCicco stands up and says, I nominate John Gotti to be the next boss of the Gambino family. All those in favor, of course, Tony and captains, affirm the vote. John has elected the, underbo- the uh, boss of the Gambino family. This is in January of 1986. John picks Frank DiCicco to be his underboss. And he also names Andrew Ruggiero to replace him as a captain. And that's democracy in the Gambino family, circa 1986.
1: Gotti was now boss of the most powerful crime family in America. It was immediately clear that his would be a very different leadership style.
4: Initially, John Gotti was pretty good. He reorganized the family. He promoted some captains. He got rid of some dead weight. But again, he wasn't. uh, very astute financially, he didn't understand construction, labor racketeering, which is the power base of his family. All they cared about was the money flowing to him. He liked the glamour, he liked the power, he liked the authority. He didn't like the day to day operations of the mechanics and running the family. All the problems, all the whining, all the beefs, all the sit downs they have to go to just to keep the family functioning. Ronald Goldstock,
1: a traditional mob boss, looked to be under the radar. They wanted to control their criminal activities through intermediaries. They did not want to be seen as a powerful individual who could be targeted by law enforcement. Gotti was precisely the opposite. Gotti loved the media attention, and he immediately went from wannabe wise guy to a mob star.
2: So John Gotti overnight becomes a, a national celebrity. His picture's on page one of newspapers. His name is all over TV. He's a, he's a headline figure. His whole exterior changed. Previously, he wore windbreakers, black t-shirts. He had the jewelry of a uh, two-bit mafiosi. Suddenly, overnight, he switches. He's now wearing tailored suits, cashmere coats, even monogrammed socks. I mean, he went to great lengths to have this appearance of being an emperor. Not only did he dress well, He switched from Lincoln Town Cars, which was sort of the typical Mafia car. He now rides around in Mercedes. He's covered all the time by a squadron of bodyguards. But he's making incredible mistakes. He wants this kind of constant attention, obsequious gratification. He surrounds himself with yes men. John Gotti was unlike every other uh, mob boss of his era. Uh, they uh, evaded publicity. They wanted to stay in the shadows. Gotti loved the limelight. He talked about it all the time. About He had his public. He didn't mind being stared at in restaurants. He boasted how important he was. He was a megalomaniac. And the media went along with this. When do you have a mob boss who smiles at you, walks, waves, uh, sports with you? Uh, so the press, in effect, turned him into a celebrity godfather. He was good copy. He was good on TV. uh, He courted the press. The press soon
1: nicknamed him the Dapper Don. But even as he ascended to the throne of the Gambino family, Gotti was awaiting trial on an assault charge from two years
2: earlier. Gotti, in his usual uh, thuggish uh, approach, had gotten into a brawl over a parking uh, incident in Queens. What happened was uh, Gotti... uh, and his driver double-parked and blocked uh, the uh, car or van of a refrigerator uh, technician or mechanic. And the mechanic had no idea who Gotti was. He came out, started complaining. He got into a tussle with Gotti and uh, one of Gotti's flunkies. And the end result was they beat up this um, refrigerator mechanic, and they also stole about $300 from him. Uh, The mechanic, not knowing who he was dealing with, made a complaint, he went to the cop, he saw where Gotti had gone into a nearby bar, which was actually a place where Gotti was using his gambling uh, headquarters, that was one of his bookie joints, and he pointed out Gotti, Gotti gets arrested.
1: Ronald Goldstock. Somebody who's going to be in the mob boss doesn't put himself in the position where he can be arrested for
3: what is essentially a meaningless incident.
2: Now, two years later, Uh, This looked like a two-bit crime in uh, Queens in New York, Queens County, and the Queens D.A. sees he's got this headline figure suddenly, uh, a crime that would have been disposed of, you know, it was a he-said, he-said kind of situation, would have been thrown out probably with a small fine. Uh, The district attorney wants to make this into a sensational case because he's got this important mafiosi in his clutches, so he brought Gotti to trial. Then before it goes to trial, all this Castellano
3: stuff happens.
1: Ramuel Piacic, the refrigerator technician, now found himself testifying against the number one criminal in the country. And he was
2: having second thoughts. He suddenly found out who he was dealing with. And he, uh, he tried to hide the, uh, the DA's office detectives, had to run him down. He was a reluctant witness. They dragged him into court. They found out later that the brake linings on his car had been cut. And also he'd been threatened by people on the street. So he goes into court and when he's asked to testify and point out who was the assaulter, he has no memory, he says he couldn't remember anything. And there was a very memorable headline in one of New York's ta- tabloid newspapers. And the headline was, I Forgot he. And the case, of course, was dismissed. And so Gotti walked out and he now seemed, again, triumphantly uh, boasting to the press that he was being picked on and victimized by law enforcement.
1: Gotti walked free, but less than two weeks later, in April 1986, he was back on trial. And this time, the charges were far more serious.
2: A RICO case, a conspiracy case, uh, in the, what is known as the Eastern District. It's a section of New York. It's actually, the trial was in Brooklyn. Now, uh, this had also occurred two years earlier. He'd been arrested. Uh, but the case was really aimed at. It was one of the uh, uh, Gambino squad's cases they were trying to make against uh, Aniello uh, Neil Della Croce. He was the lead defendant and the really important defendant when the case was brought, uh, when the indictment was brought and the investigation was concluded. And Gotti was so obscure that at the time that he uh, came for arraignment, uh, they, nobody knew how to spell his name. They got his name spelled wrong. He was just another capo uh, in Della Croce's wing of the family. Now Della Croce is dead, and uh, who's the important and suddenly, surprisingly, overnight becomes the lead defendant in this case is Gotti. Uh, Many people in the Justice Department and many organized crime uh, prosecutors and uh, investigators thought it was a weak case. Since the case had been aimed, tailored, and made to convict uh, Della Croce, uh, it wasn't—the evidence against Gotti didn't appear to be that strong and they recommended that it be thrown out because what, it would, what would happen is anything they use in a case that was lost, they could never use against Gotti again. Uh, despite this, there was a dispute within the Justice Department, and the, um, the Brooklyn U.S. Attorney's Office decided to go ahead with the case.
1: The young assistant prosecutor, John Gleason, hoped they'd hit Gotti with the maximum 20-year sentence.
3: It was a racketeering case with what we call predicate acts particular crimes that they committed as part of their membership in the Gambino family.
1: Gleason hoped it would be a humiliation for Gotti, but instead, Gotti turned it into a media circus.
3: Overnight it became a media sensation because of the attraction to John Gotti. After the break,
1: as author Selwyn Rabb remembers, Gotti even tried to bring members of the press on side.
2: He would uh, have uh espresso with uh, some brandy that he would pour in or anisette. And he often invited the women reporters, never the male reporters, to share these drinks with him. He opened doors for the women. He considered himself uh, a new element in organized crime. And he was somebody who was untouchable. So in that sense, uh, he, uh, he was great copy and the press fed off of him and made these uh, headlines about him uh, and glamorized him glorified him. Uh, here he was, a killer criminal, a stone-cold killer, and yet he was looked upon as some virtuous figure. And part of it was also the public ate it up. Uh, there was a vicarious kick to this. Here was this guy, he had this come-and-get-me attitude to law enforcement. He made fun of them. Uh, when he was being trailed, he would actually make believe he was shooting back at them. He caught all, this attention. And the press loved it, the media ate it up, and uh, he relished in it also. So what they did was they made him into this celebrity figure. And there's always, it's not just with Gotti, it goes back to Jesse James, criminals in America's past. Here's somebody who defies authority. Uh, he doesn't work a nine-to-five day. A lot of people think he has this glamorous life. Here he is, he's dressed well. He rides around with a copy of bodyguards. Uh, He thumbs his nose at at, uh, law enforcement. Uh, So here you have this uh, ignoble figure, this cruel, vicious killer, who's looked upon in some way as a hero. It's a terrible indictment, not just of the media, but also of this kind of underlying vicarious kick public gets out of figures like John Gotti.
1: What nobody knew at the time was that Gotti's victory had always been guaranteed.
2: Gotti had an insurance policy that he'd get a not guilty verdict. One of the jurors was bribed. In fact, the juror, you talk about good luck, had some remote relationships with some uh, underworld figures and they actually approached the Gotti family or the Gambino family and offered to make sure there would be no conviction. And this one juror, uh, from the beginning, held out for acquittal, and not only that, but he managed to convince uh, 11 other jurors that Gotti was innocent, so he, he was paid a bribe of about $65,000. But it was a pretty good way of making sure you would not be convicted.
1: Later, juror George Poppy would be found guilty of accepting $60,000 to withhold a guilty verdict. But at the time, the case was a disaster for
3: the government. It was a prosecutor's nightmare. It was a horror show. And John Gotti loved it. He enjoyed every minute of it. He knew he wasn't going to get convicted. He knew he had a free ride. He knew there was no downside for him in the trial, only an upside.
2: So Gotti walked out, and now he had all these big headlines. The dapper Don, the Don who couldn't be convicted, the uh, invincible godfather. A lot of that seemingly went to his head, and he began to believe his own headlines.
1: But inside the New York mob, Gotti's enemies were preparing for a counterattack. The killing of Castellano had not been sanctioned by the commission and so it was punishable by death as mike vicione head of brooklyn's rackets division and assistant district attorney explains
5: when gotti assumed the position of head of the gambino family following the death of castellano um, he immediately became uh, the target of some of the old school wise guys the heads of the families namely vincent de chin giganti who was the head of the um, Genovese family.
2: There's no doubt that in the latter part of the 20th century, the most important godfather, most intriguing, powerful, wealthiest Don in New York and probably the country was Vincent Chin Giganti. He was the most intriguing and wealthiest of the lot.
1: Giganti had been a close friend and business associate of Paul Castellano, and he also despised Gotti's courting of the media. Giganti was the exact opposite to Gotti. As Rab explains, he went to extraordinary lengths to remain in the shadows.
2: And for decades, he was able to outwit and deceive the FBI and other investigators by what he called this crazy act, in which he wandered around the city in his pajamas sometimes, acting strangely and uh, bizarrely, indeed, in fact, urinating in the street.
1: It was an idea he'd hit upon when he'd faced charges of bribery years earlier in the late 1960s. Larry McShane has written a book about the life and times of this secretive dawn. Uh, but at this time, the prosecutor in Bergen County
6: um, decided to make a case out of it. And uh, he was accused of bribing, <laughs> it sounds crazy, but bribing the entire police force. And then his lawyer came to court and said... Uh, my client is mentally unwell and he's actually in a mental hospital. This is 1969, 1970. The idea of an insanity defense really hadn't been broached anywhere. And uh, the case dragged on for a couple years, mostly because this was the first time that Giganti ever used the mental insanity ruse as a criminal defense. And uh, the prosecutor in Bergen County, New Jersey really had no idea what to
1: do to to combat this defense. Giganti escaped conviction, and over the next decade, he meticulously embellished his role, building a convincing picture of a mentally disturbed man. He would get up in the morning,
6: and uh, he would become this character. You know, the chin was the mob boss, and then there was this character that he played out on the streets. And uh, his daughter described to me how he would actually kind of get into the character the way you'd imagine, you know, a Brando or a Pacino, a method actor would get into character. Uh, When he was on the streets, you know, he would do things like speak with the parking meters, uh, urinate in public, uh, any sort of touch kind of grand or small that further allowed anyone watching FBI passers-by to believe that he was crazy.
2: How could anyone think that this person would be the head of the most powerful mobster family in America? It worked for years. Inside the mafia, John Gotti may have got the headlines, Giganti had the power and had the money, and uh, he was able to get away with this act for decades. He outwitted, outfoxed, and outmaneuvered the FBI and all the prosecutors in the New York area for decades.
1: Giganti quietly wielded his power from the shadows, ordering the killing of countless victims. And now, he was adamant. John Gotti must die. But he decided not to take on Gotti directly. Instead, he gave the job to another of New York's crime families, the Lucchese family. Specifically to their underboss, Anthony Gaspipe Casso.
0: Joe Ponzi, chief
1: investigator in the Brooklyn DA's office, explains.
0: Casso and Giganti um, decided to uh, exact a measure of revenge and and kill John Gotti. Um, And that attempt actually took place um, in April of 1986 in front of a social club in Brooklyn.
1: On April 13th, 1986, One of Casso's men approached the Veterans and Friends Social Club in Diker Heights, Brooklyn, where Gotti and his underboss, Frank DeChico, were supposed to be attending a meeting. Mike Vecchione. So they cooked up this
5: scheme where a bomb was going to be put under the car that Gotti was in with his longtime driver on a Sunday morning outside of a social club that they knew that Gotti frequented uh, on a regular basis. They put the bomb underneath the car. They set it off.
0: Unfortunately for Casso and Giganti, uh, John Gotti wasn't in the car. It was uh, Frank DeCicco, a trusted aide of John Gotti, and, um, and Frankie Bolino, who, from a distance, uh, could resemble Gotti in uh, stature and appearance. And um, DeCicco was killed as a result of a bomb that was placed under the car uh, that they detonated, um, and Bellino was seriously, seriously injured. So Gotti now knew that someone
5: attempted his life, had attempted to kill him. So in retaliation, and he figured it out that it was Gaspipe. in retaliation, he put together a hit team to kill Gaspipe.
1: It would be the start of an all-out war. As DA Chief Investigator Joe Ponzi explains, the Gambinos soon set a trap for Casso.
0: Casso uh, had made an appointment to meet an associate of his for a discussion about some stolen treasury bills, but in fact, he had been set up. And uh, two cars arrived on the scene while he was sitting in his own car, uh, eating an ice cream, and um, shots erupted. He was uh, hit twice. Um, he was able to crawl out of the car and go into a local restaurant, the Golden Ox restaurant, and secrete himself in the freezer in the basement of that uh, location until such time as the, the hit team uh, dispersed from the area. Casso was determined to track down his would-be assassins. Casso, he was out of his mind with rage and anger and was willing to do anything uh, to exact revenge on the individuals who were responsible for that attempt on his life. He
1: contacted an old acquaintance for help, Bert Kaplan, a small-time criminal with connections in all sorts of places, including the New York Police Department. Kaplan introduced Casso to two New York detectives, Stephen Caracapa and Louis Eppolito. DA Chief Investigator Joe Ponzi knew both cops.
0: I knew uh, Detective Eppolito better than I knew Detective Caracappa, only because Detective Caracappa was very tight-lipped, uh, very buttoned down, very mysterious almost in, in, in some way. Louis was much more gregarious, much more flamboyant, always telling stories, always telling jokes, always had an audience around him. Um, I knew that early on in his career, there were allegations that he uh, passed information over to a wise guy, but he had been charged departmentally, not criminally. And uh, he was exonerated, so as far as I was concerned, it was probably just because he had wise guys in his family and, and, um, and maybe nothing more than that. Um, I had no reason to believe that either one of them were capable of anything like this. But
1: Kaplan knew that Caracapa and Epolito were willing to moonlight for the mob. And as luck would have it, Epolito worked in the very precinct where the attempt on Caso's life had taken place. With an investigation already underway, it was easy for him to discover who the police suspected. Eppolito passed the names to Kaplan, who forwarded them to Casso. One of the names on the list was a young street hood with minor mob connections, Jimmy Heidel.
5: The reason that Gaspipe wanted to, um, to find first Jimmy Heidel is because he knew that Jimmy Heidel was kind of a weak link, that if he had gotten him in a position where he would make him talk and he would be able to get the names of the other people.
1: But Jimmy Heidel had gone into hiding. So Casso turned to the corrupt cops again. For $30,000, they'd find Heidel and deliver him to Casso alive.
0: He had a tool that none of the other families had, which is why he often and somewhat euphemistically referred to them as his crystal ball. It allowed him the opportunity to see things that no one else could see. They set about
1: using NYPD resources to find Heidel, and in October 1986, they got a lead from Jimmy Heidel himself. Concerned for his safety, Heidel contacted the police. He couldn't have known that by doing so, he would be giving his location to the men
0: hired to hunt him down. They went directly to the vicinity of Diker Park, which is in the area of 86th Street and 14th Avenue in Brooklyn. Um, they scoured the area for a considerable period of time and ultimately spotted him near a laundromat on 15th Avenue right off of 86th Street. Um, they approached him. Um, Epolito and Heidel had had some prior contact, so uh, it seems that uh, Heidel knew who Epolito was and that he was an active New York City cop. Um, they told him that he needed to come with them uh, to accompany them back to the precinct. Uh, and uh, they ultimately put him in uh, the unmarked car that they had. It was Epolito and Caracappa.
1: Mike Vecchioni would later work to expose the crooked cops.
0: They met him and put him in their car,
5: handcuffed, and told him that they were taking him back to the police station. They were going to ask him some questions. All seemed to be above board for a bad guy like Jimmy Heidel. I mean, he was always a hanger-on, a wannabe in terms of mobster. So getting put in a police car is nothing unusual for him. Problem for him was
0: that he was not going to a station house. They handcuffed him and put him in the trunk of the car, um, assaulted him, some, uh, I'm sure. Uh, I'm told there was a sufficient level of resistance on Heidel's part. And then um, contacted Burt Kaplan, who contacted Casso, who informed them that he wanted them to bring Heidel to him at the Toys R Us uh, parking lot off of Flatbush Avenue in Brooklyn, and uh, that's where the exchange actually took place. Once Casso took possession of Heidel, he brought him to the home of the Cavalcanti uh, crime family member who had given him access to his home, uh, either on vacation or away for some period of time, and he took him down into the basement of that home. Casso tortured the kid for hours until Heidel finally gave up the
1: names of those behind the failed hit. One of them was Eddie Lino, a captain in the Gambino crime family close to John Gotti. Casso had what he needed. The killing of Jimmy Heidel sealed the deal between Casso and the two cops. They were put on the mob's payroll at $4,000 a month.
5: When I found out that they were on the mob payroll, I was flabbergasted. I had never heard of anything like that in all the years that I had been involved in law enforcement. The district attorney called it the the most serious case of police corruption
1: in the history of the New York City Police Department. But Epolito and Caracapa didn't stop there. Casso wanted Eddie Lino dead next, but as a close friend of John Gotti, Lino would be a difficult target. He turned again to the corrupt cops.
5: Castle liked using Epilito and Caracappa because they were um, a known reliable entity
1: in terms of getting what they needed. They agreed to whack Lino for $75,000. On November 6th, 1990, Eddie Lino left his club on Avenue U and pulled away in his S-Class Mercedes. Following him were Epolito and Caracapa. On the Belt Parkway near Brighton Beach, they turned on their siren. After
5: pulling him over on the highway in Brooklyn, uh, pretending that they were looking for his cousin, I think. And um, he kind of let his guard down, thinking, OK, I'm good. I don't, they're not going to bother me. And um, while he was in the car, they said to him, what's that on the floor of the passenger
1: side? And he leaned over to look. Caracappa pulled a gun and shot Lino in the head at point-blank range. Two of Gotti's closest Gambino family confidants were now dead, and Gotti knew he was a marked man. He was out of moves, or was he? A meeting was arranged between Gotti, Giganti, and the Lucchese leaders. Gotti wanted to make peace. Giganti told Gotti he'd never tried to kill him. Gotti willingly accepted it, and a truce was arranged. Just as it seemed Gotti was in the crosshairs, he'd saved his own skin. But Gotti wouldn't be in the clear for long. The law would soon be coming after him again. In the next episode, We'll see how Gotti's ability to escape justice saw the newspapers label him the Teflon Don, because no charges would ever stick.
2: Gotti's got three big victories, and he has uh, supporters cheering him when he walks out of the courtroom this time, third time in about two years.
1: But we'll speak to those inside the FBI and the Bureau's special ops unit.
4: It was important that the rule of law prevail here. It was important that someone who was a thug a killer, you know, not get away with this. Now we had three mics going, and John Gotti was coming to the club. He went in the hallway a few times, but he wasn't going upstairs. And you always wonder did they uh, discover something? Did they make the tech guys did they leave a little piece of wire behind? You know, has it been compromised?
1: Who, through daring surveillance operations, finally got to Gotti? This has
0: been an Audio Boom Original. Thanks to our sponsors, Blue Apron and Casper. And be sure to check out Empty Frames on Apple Podcasts today. Please rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.